808 now on WCCO. Hello and welcome to Your Money with the founder of the Wealth Enhancement Group, Bruce Helmer. We'll get to Bruce in just a moment. This is Laura Oaks in for Susie Jones this morning. Just want to remind you, if you have a financial question for Bruce, you can call this number any time of the day, 24-7, 1-888-6-ADVICE, 1-888-6-ADVICE. You can also email any questions you might have to Your Money at wealthenhancement.com. And, of course, you can call or text our studio line 651-461-9226. That is the City's One Talk and Text Line. We're happy to take your calls and texts all throughout the show. Now, here's the founder of Wealth Enhancement Group and financial advisor, Bruce Helmer. Good morning, Bruce. Hello, Laura Oaks. Thank you for the wonderful introduction. It's good to be with you. And you. So for listeners, I, I don't think uh, it's inappropriate if I tell the listeners, <laughs> and I don't want to embarrass you, Laura, but um, I told you privately, so I'll say it publicly, I've been a fan of yours oh for probably more years than you want me to talk about, <laughs> and you and I have become good friends over the years, so it's, it's great to do the show with you we today. We have, yes. I was excited to get the opportunity to fill in today. I think this is going to be fun. Yeah, so you jump in whenever you have a question, and uh, and I'll do the best to uh, address whatever questions you have. And some of the uh, things you think of might be things that listeners think of as well. But, of course, we always uh, encourage their participation also. Laura, today I, I wanted to talk – oh, and I'm sorry, Peg Webb is getting a uh, well-deserved day off today. She'll, uh, she'll be back with us uh, next week. I wanted to talk today, and, and, and I actually talk about this pretty frequently – but I don't think I can talk about it too often because I still get questions and comments that lead me to believe that my message is not sinking in in all society. People out there listening today and, and even people that, that call us up that consider engaging our services always want to talk about where should they put their money? What should they be investing in? Should it be ABC stock, XYZ fund? Where should I put my money right now? Should I be buying commodities? Should I be buying gold and silver? And they're focused on what they should invest in. And I try to coach people all the time. And I, and again, I, I think I speak about it fairly frequently, that the financial strategies, the methodologies that we use are going to be far more valuable for most people than the investments that they select. Now, I, I wouldn't expect to get away with a statement like that without being able to back it up a little bit. So here's an example, just to start, a, a nice easy one to start with. Lori, I think you probably know what a Roth IRA is, correct? I do. Okay, so for listeners that don't know, a Roth IRA, and we could also include traditional IRAs in, in this discussion, but let's focus on Roth just for a second. A Roth is a, a Roth IRA, I make a contribution into it, and I don't get a deduction or any immediate tax benefit for my contribution. It's what we call an after-tax dollar. So I've already paid taxes on the money that I invest. But if I allow that money to stay there for at least five years or until age 59 and a half, whichever is longer, so if I invest at 50 and now I'm 55 and I say now I can take a tax-free withdrawal, nope, it's, you're not 59 and a half yet. Or if I put money in there at 58, now I'm 59 and a half, I say I can take a tax-free withdrawal, nope, you got to give it five years to age 63. But five years or age 59 and a half, whichever is longer, 
I can take my gains out of there completely tax-free. I don't have to pay any taxes. A lot of people, I think, still think of a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA as an investment. So, for example, someone might say, what's wealth enhancement paying on their Roth IRAs right now? And I'm like, well, it depends upon what we invest in because the Roth IRA is a strategy or a tactic, a methodology. It's not the investment. What I put in that strategy could be individual stocks and bonds. It could be funds, stock funds, bond funds, real estate funds. It could be a money market. Heck, it could be a passbook savings account at the bank. So the return on investment that I get is going to be driven by the investment itself. But whatever that return is, if I let it stay in that Roth for at least five years or until age 59 and a half, whichever is longer, I don't pay any taxes on those gains. So if I think I found the best investment in the history of the world and I think I'm going to get double-digit rates of return, but that investment is in a taxable account, I'm going to get a 1099, I'm going to pay taxes every year, I'm going to pay taxes when I sell it, and I'm going to have to pay long-term capital gains on the difference between what I bought it for and what I sold it for. And whatever that rate of return is, the gross rate of return, the net return that I get to keep is going to be net, netted down by the taxes that I pay. So if I, just to make the math simple, if I get a 10% rate of return, hypothetical 10% rate of return, my net after-tax rate of return might be 7 or 7.5. But if I put that same investment into a Roth IRA and I don't have to pay any taxes on the gain, I get to keep the whole 10%. That's what's significant. The, the, the investment that was, you know, in and of itself, yes, picking good investments matters, but the strategy of the Roth IRA is what greatly enhanced my net return on investment because I avoided the taxes. Reducing uh, taxes is one of the most efficient ways that we can enhance our clients' net return on investment. So that's just a real simple example. Roth IRA most people listening probably know what it is. Many, many of our listeners probably have one. And it's a great strategy because if you use it right, you can avoid the taxes. Now, I also mentioned traditional IRA. The difference there being I actually get a deduction for my contribution. So, again, same example. I've got the best investment ever in the history of the world, and I can own it in a taxable account or I can put it in an IRA and get a deduction for my contribution that reduces my taxes the year that I make the investment, then I defer the taxes or I don't pay any taxes on the gain, I don't get a 1099 every year, but then I do ultimately pay the taxes when I withdraw money out of there, but I'm still going to net more by getting that deduction and deferring or delaying the tax than if I pay taxes fully and immediately. So Roth IRA and IRA are examples of strategies, and it's why I say that the strategies are going to be more important to your ultimate result than the actual investment that you make. Yet, in my experience, so many people are still focused on, what should I buy? Where should I put my money? Is it a good time to get into the market? Is it a good time to get out of the market? And most of the time, those things are not going to matter nearly as much as strategies. Let me give you some other examples. Um, we talk a lot on this show, Laura, about Roth conversions. And what we mean by that is, let's say you're somebody that has a traditional IRA or a traditional 401k, and 
we come to you or you come to us, we, we work together, and we look at taking withdrawals or distributions from your traditional IRA, paying the tax, and putting the balance into a Roth. And sometimes when we show that to people, they're, they're instantly like, well, no, I don't want to do that. I, I'm going to have to pay taxes. I'm going to, I'm going to have a bigger tax liability this year if I do that. And again, I coach people that we're not necessarily always just focused on the current year. Our goal with our clients is to reduce taxes over your lifetime. And sometimes it's better to pay a little bit more in taxes in the short term if we pay a lot less in the long term. And a Roth conversion might be an example of that. We shift money from traditional IRA or traditional 401k, get it in the Roth. There's a cost to do that. But now when it goes into the Roth and it grows into the Roth and there's no future tax due on that money, the net tax I pay over my lifetime can actually be considerably less despite that short-term cost or tax that I have to pay to get it there. Um, another example, strategies. Again, it's one I've talked about on the show before. We talk about rebalancing. Now, Laura, I think all the listeners or most of the listeners probably understand or they would tell me that they understand that when it comes to investing, you want to buy low and sell high. Everybody thinks they know that intellectually, yet when we look at the human behavior out there, we know that they don't always do it. And sometimes they're influenced by emotions. It might be fear. It might be greed. Uh, in 2008 or, or last year in 2022 when the market's going down, a lot of people might have sold out of the market because they were afraid to stay there, even though they would look at me and say, I understand, buy low and sell high. Now they're selling low after the market retracted because they're afraid. So even though they think they understand, their behavior does not always follow what they think they know. So one of the ways that we help people do that, buy low and sell high, is with a strategy that we call rebalancing. Now again, here's a, here's a way oversimplified example. If I have a client that has half of their money in the stock market and half of their money in fixed interest investments, mostly bonds, and throughout time, and we want them to be, we, we've determined that's the appropriate allocation for their desired rate of return, their goals and objectives, their risk tolerance, their time horizon, 50-50 portfolios where they should be. But over time, let's say stocks do a lot better than bonds, and we all of a sudden we look at their portfolio, and now 60% of their money is in the stock market and 40% is in bonds. They didn't do anything. It's just that the stocks grew faster than the bonds. We might go in and rebalance, sell out of some of those stocks, move that money in the bonds, and get them back to 50-50. And you say, well, why would you do that? Why am I selling the thing that's doing well? Let's remember what we're trying to do here. Buy low and sell high. If we're selling stocks now because there's 60% of the money, that means that they grew faster than the bonds. We probably have embedded gains in there. We're taking those winnings off the table. We're locking in those gains. And we're going to buy the bonds, which are probably priced lower than the stocks because they haven't done as well since we started the portfolio. That's why they're only 40% now and not 60%. And when we do this rebalancing, we essentially take the emotion out of it, the fear and the greed and, and other things that drive people's decisions, and we have a scientific strategy or methodology of how we're going to try to maximize the efficiency of that portfolio. So, Rebalancing is not unique to wealth enhancement. It's something that 
pretty much everybody in MySpace uses. Now, how often you rebalance and when you rebalance gets trickier when you take taxes into consideration and other things into consideration. So everybody in MySpace, Laura and listeners, uh, pretty much agrees that rebalancing is a good thing, but exactly when you do it or how to do it, there's a lot of disagreement on that. It's not an exact science. But the strategy of rebalancing in and of itself is pretty universally accepted that that's a good strategy. Another strategy that many of you are using right now and maybe don't even know it, if you're contributing on a regular basis to your 401k, it just, it's just withheld from your paycheck, you don't even see the money, you're doing something called dollar cost averaging. You're putting in the same dollar amount or over the same time frame over a prolonged period of time and you're buying into those investments at a variety of different share prices. Now again, when people make decisions based on fear, so a lot of people in 2008 and probably a lot of people listening last year in 2022 when it was a bad year in the market, they maybe not only pulled their money out of the market, but maybe they stopped contributing to their 401k plan because they said, why would I put more money in this rotten market that's going down? I just, I, I, I'm, put, I'm, I'm putting you know, good money after bad. Why would I do that? Well, what you're doing is you're buying low. The market went down. You're making the same dollar amount contribution with every paycheck, and you're now actually buying more shares of the investment at a lower share price, which is exactly what you want to do. So that dollar cost averaging, that sort of set it and forget it, they're just going to take this amount out of every paycheck, actually is a very efficient strategy to keep investors investing in the market and, again, not shooting themselves in the foot or making a bad decision because they're driven by emotion or something other than, than logic or, or common sense. A um, couple more examples here, and, and, uh, and yes, but we definitely want to get listeners involved today, but um, here's another one that we talk about a lot, Lauren. Again, this is, this is strategic. This is not about the actual investment that somebody makes. We always talk about growing money um, for our future so that we can retire someday and have an income and have a lifestyle that, that we want, have a retirement that we want without having to worry about running out of money. Now, again, this is a slight oversimplif uh, oversimplification for the purposes of a radio show, but if I'm somebody you know, young, like you are, Laura, in my 40s or 30s, or what, and I have a long time before I'm going to retire, you're probably focused on growth, and you should be. You want to you grow your portfolio, your retirement plan, whatever it is. You want to grow it as much as you can until you retire. But as you get closer to retirement, the priority probably changes, or it should, from growth to preservation. Now my time horizon is shorter. I want to lock in and preserve those gains I've had over the years. I don't want to go backwards at this point in my life. So logically, we help clients you know, change their focus and change their strategies from growth to preservation and maybe income. Maybe you're going to want to take money out of your retirement plan because you've retired and you're not getting a paycheck anymore, and that's going to help subsidize your lifestyle. So you, you go from a priority of growth to a priority of preservation and income. You still want growth, but that's probably a, a far distant third on your priority list. And how do you do that? Again, that's strategic planning. And then we get into what we call retirement income planning. I like to call that spending the smartest money first. 
And having an efficient plan on how you spend your money actually makes your money last a lot longer again. And it has nothing to do with where is my money or what investment am I in. It's the strategy of spending the smartest money first. What does that mean, spending the smartest money first? So when we look at it, it's going to be a combination of tax considerations. You probably have a lot of money in tax deferred where you're going to pay taxes when you spend the money. But you might have some in tax advantage, like Roth, where you can spend without taxes. And then most people probably have some in taxable accounts. So what money you spend is going to be a function of trying to maximize the efficiency from a tax standpoint, but also from an investment standpoint. Now, again, simple, over, oversimplified example. In 2008, if I needed money, if I was retired, I probably didn't want to sell stocks because the market was down 50% and I'm locking in losses. If I had cash or bonds or something that wasn't underwater, the investment results would have told me that was the smarter money to spend. But if stocks are at or near high, or if I've got a lot of embedded gains in my stocks, there's nothing wrong with selling, locking in that gain, taking those winnings off the table, leaving my cash alone. So spending the smart money is going to be a combination of looking at the investment results of your various options, as well as the tax considerations. And a lot of people in my space, I don't want to do a commercial for my firm, but the truth is, a lot of people that can help people, that help clients uh, grow their money, invest their money, don't want to help you spend it. In fact, they would rather you didn't spend it because if you leave it with them, they make more profit off you and they don't want you to spend it. Well, I get that you're going to spend it. That's why you saved and invested so you could retire someday and enjoy your retirement. So we actually help our clients spend the money that they have with us but do that efficiently and effectively and make it last as long as we can. We want to create a paycheck for life. That's a big responsibility, and we take that responsibility very, very seriously. And again, reducing taxes uh, over a lifetime is one of the best ways that you can enhance your return on investment. All right, last one, and it's going to time out pretty good, Laura. I know we've only got a couple minutes before we need to go to break. But I want to talk really quickly about tax diversification because so many people think, they, again, they, they, look, they look short-term. They look at the current tax year and they think, I want to stuff as much money as I can to my company retirement plan because those are pre-tax dollars. The money I put in the plan reduces my taxable income this year, which reduces my taxes. And that's true. And that is a good strategy. And I would never tell anyone not to use that strategy. But what I would tell people is, that should not be your only strategy. I want people that put money into tax-deferred plans like traditional 401ks and traditional IRAs, but I also want people putting money into Roth or, or tax advantage strategies. And then finally, and this is the one that's sort of taboo or people treat it like a swear word or blasphemy or something, they don't want any money in taxable investments. Why would I put money in there? I'm going to get a 1099. I have to pay taxes on it every year. I want to have IRAs and Roth IRAs and 401ks and Roth 401ks. I don't want any taxable money. And I always tell clients, so all things being equal, deferring the tax is better than paying immediately, and avoiding the tax altogether is better than deferring. But all things are not equal. Taxable investments are liquid. Taxable investments might give you long-term capital gains treatment, which is typically lower than ordinary income tax. 
Uh, taxable investments may give the next generation a step-up in basis when they inherit the money, and they don't have to pay taxes on the years of gain that I had on the investment. If I don't sell it uh, and I leave it to my kids, their basis steps up to the value of the day I die, and they can sell that investment without paying taxes. You don't get that on tax-deferred plans or tax-advantaged plans. So taxable are not horrible investments, and I want my clients to have all three. Investments can only be treated one of three ways from a tax standpoint, taxable, tax-deferred, or tax-advantaged. Smart money has exposure to all three categories, and most people don't want to do that and don't have that until I meet them. And Laura, I know we're about due for a break. All right. Thank you, Bruce. We do have uh, one question on our text line so far that we're going to get to after the break. Again, if you have a question for Bruce on the strategies that you're trying to employ, Bruce's topic today, strategies being more important than the actual investments. If you want to get a question in, please do to our Cities One Talk and text line 651-461-9226. That's 651-461-9226. More with Bruce after the break. 835 on CCO. We are back with Your Money and Wealth Enhancement Group founder, Bruce Helmer. Bruce, we have a call from Steve right off the bat. Well, let's talk to Steve, Laura. Go Bruce, ahead, Steve. Thanks. Hi, Laura. Hi. Hi, Bruce. Thanks for taking my call. I enjoy listening to your show every Sunday morning. Um, my question is, I wonder if you would talk briefly about the concept of a long-term investor my um, grandparents and aunties and uncles all lived into their 90s. Um, and I don't think it's a, when I hit 65, I don't plan to um, shift my money over to bonds just because I'm 65. <laughs> what do you think about that? Steve, thank you for listening. Thank you for your kind words. And thanks for a great question. And I totally agree with you. And this is, again, um, one of the things that we still encounter a lot, so um, to, to kind of paraphrase what I think Steve's question is, so people, as they get older, um, they, 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 they want to get more conservative, and that's logical to a point. Um, we always talk to our clients about time horizon, about risk tolerance, about desired rate of return, and what we mean by time horizon is when are you likely to, to need or want to spend some of this money? And uh, I'm going to go through something that we do a lot in the show, but again, I don't think I can do this too often. Peg probably does it better than I do, but I'll give it my best shot. We try to coach our clients to have short-term money. Now, what do we mean by short-term? Different advisors probably give it different parameters, but to me, short-term is money that you think you're going to spend or you know for sure you're going to have to spend in the next two or three years. That type of money should not have risk of principal on it, in my opinion. Find the best interest rate you can, the best money market, the best bank account, a bank CD, whatever, and that money should not have risk of principal because if you put it in the stock market and the market goes down, which we all know it can do in the short term, now you need to spend that money and it's less than what you put into the investment. So we don't want that to happen. Then there's midterm money. That might be money that you say, I know I'm not going to need it in the next five years, but I'll need it in less than 10. I'm, uh, I'm 59 years old. I'm going to retire at 65. And when I do, I'm going to start to pull money out of my retirement plan. That six-year money should be invested, in my opinion, the, the bulk of it, in a broadly diversified portfolio, which does include stocks and bonds. 
and maybe some other alternative asset classes like gold and silver and other precious metals, oil and other commodities, real estate, and so on. A broadly diversified portfolio like that could certainly retract in the short term. 2022 is a good example. Almost all asset classes were down in 2022, but that doesn't happen very often. Um, so over a five to six, you know, five to ten year period of time, you're probably going to get a pretty decent rate of return with a minimal amount of risk. And then long term money to me is money that you can say, I know I don't have to touch it for ten years or more. Doesn't mean you can't. Again, if you need money. Your long-term money should be stocks or mostly stocks. Why? Because historically, despite the short-term volatility, history has taught us that historically, stocks give investors their highest return. So we want the long-term money mostly in stocks, but, but if we need money, and it hasn't been in there 10 years yet, but we've got a lot of embedded gains, we might say, let's sell some stocks and lock in those gains and take the winnings off the table. And you might say, well, wait a minute, it hasn't even been in there 10 years. And I would say, I know, but it, it's never a bad idea to take winnings off the table. And I'd rather do that than, than waste your cash right now when we don't need to. The cash is there so that you never have to sell stocks at an inopportune time. I go back to the first half of the show and what I call my smart money strategy or retirement income planning I'll sell, I, 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 the cash is there, so I didn't have to sell stocks in 2008 when the market was down. So I didn't have to sell stocks in 2022 when the market was down. I can use my cash. So the short-term, mid-term, long-term money, this isn't just a hypothesis in a, in a, in a financial education course. This is real-world stuff. I've been doing this for over 40 years. I've seen this work countless times, and it always works. It's never not worked. It worked in 2008. It worked in 2022. I do this in my own life. So, Steve, back to your original question. Yes, 65, should you be more conservative than 45? Yes, probably. Should you put all of your money into, into you know, completely safe accounts in the bank? Probably not, because then you run the risk of not keeping pace with inflation and or not getting enough return to make your money last as long as you do. So when we do financial forecasting for our clients, we might assume they live to age 100 or so, and we want their money to last as long as they do. And if you get too conservative and have too low of a return on your investment, and we show, well, look, you're going to run out of money at age 79. That risk of running out of money, to me, is a lot more frightening than the short-term risk I take with market volatility, especially if I know I can set that aside and not worry about it. So, again, I know I keep hearkening back to 2008, but I know everybody remembers how bad it was in October of 07. The Dow was trading at a little over 14,000. By March of 09, it was like 65 or 6,600. It was down 60% over an 18 month period of time, and everybody was freaking out. And so were my clients. I don't mean to imply that I was above the fray. I had nervous clients also. But at review meeting after review meeting, I said, look, you have less money now than you did in 2007 but it's mostly in what we call your long-term money. And we agreed that was long-term money. You weren't going to spend that this year anyway. Let's spend your cash. We've still got the cash that we carved out for you. You can still 
you know, snowbird and go to Florida or Arizona for the winter. You can still tithe to your church. You can still gift to your kids. Nothing has to change. It's just that we're not going to sell the stocks till the market recovers, which it ultimately did. The Dow went from 14,000 to 6,600. Today, the Dow's at over 34,000. Historically, stocks have always come back from their lows, and there's no reason to believe that that won't always continue. So again, stocks for the long term, not for the short term. And then if we carve out a third tranche of medium term or midterm money, then we're going to have a combination of a lot of things. And Steve and listeners and Laura, if everybody would do that, I'm absolutely convinced you're going to have financial success. You're going to have a happy retirement. And again, I've, I've, I've used it countless times in my career. I've never seen it not work. Again, I'm not trying to toot my own horn or do a commercial, but I know not everybody in the industry does this. Not everybody in my space believes in this. And I'll have this discussion, I'll have this debate with anybody, anytime, anywhere, on any stage. I know I'm right. Steve, you're right. Um, now, the trick is how much should be in stocks. You said you, know, you, you don't want to get completely out of stocks and get too conservative, and you're right. But we also don't want to have more money at risk than we need to to get the rate of return that we want to achieve our goals and objectives and our dreams. So with a lot of our clients, we do what we call future value forecasting, and we determine what's the rate of return that we need to get you where you want to be. And if that number is 5%, we can get 5% and be pretty conservative and not have a lot of money exposed to stocks, especially with interest rates being higher these days. But if the number is 8% to get to where you want to be, we have to have more exposure to stocks or we can't make that 8%. In fact, if the number comes out to be 8%, I might actually tell the client, maybe you want to consider working a year or two longer than you told me you did because there's no guarantee that you can earn 8% uh, per year during retirement, so maybe you can't retire yet. And people said to me before, boy, I bet that's a hard conversation to have. It's really not, because they'd rather know now at 64 that they're going to run out of money at 79 than to figure it out at 78 when the money's almost gone. So I don't mind having that conversation, and clients have never gotten mad or upset with me for pointing that out and keep them from driving over the end of the cliff. Steve, I hope that answered your question. Thank you. Laurie, I guess we have a ton of texts, and, of course, we'd also take more callers if we get them. Yes, let's go to the first text, Bruce. Good morning. I bought an annuity 20 years ago. The funds were invested in an aggressive growth stock fund with Pacific Life Insurance Company. I'm wondering if I can take losses from my regular equity account and apply them toward the gains from the annuity. Okay, that's a great question. So what this person is trying to do is a strategy, again, the whole show, if you join us late, listeners, um, we're talking about strategies and how those are more important than, uh, than the actual investments that, that you make. So what this texture is trying to do, Laura, is use a strategy that we call uh, uh, tax loss harvesting, or, or basically we, we, we take gains that we would have to pay taxes on, and we offset that with losses to try to minimize the tax. Now, the first problem is we never want anyone to end up selling an investment at a loss. Now, it does happen, 
and, and, we, and we will use that strategy. But I always tell clients, uh, clients that complain about the taxes that they have to pay on their gain, I always say, look, you'd rather pay taxes because you made money than to deduct the loss because you lost money. But yes, we can use those two things to offset each other, but it doesn't work with an annuity. And for listeners that don't know what an annuity is, an annuity is another type of an investment. Um, and with, with an annuity, one of, the, one of the features of this investment is that you get tax deferral almost like a traditional IRA or 403B or 401K plan. You don't get a deduction for the contribution unless you're funding an IRA or some other tax deferred plan. So if it's just a what we call a non-qualified annuity or not in an IRA, you don't get any deduction for your contribution but you don't pay any taxes on the earnings along the way. You're deferring or delaying the taxes, and you only pay the taxes when you withdraw money out of that annuity. But unfortunately, when you do make a withdrawal, an annuity, if it's not in an IRA, it's assumed to be that the earnings come out first. In other words, if I put 50000 into an annuity and now it's worth 75000 I can't withdraw 25,000 and say, that's half of what I put in. I don't owe taxes on that. It's assumed to be the earnings first until I get to my basis or my contribution, then that part is not taxed. I'm only taxed on the gains. But on an annuity, just like an IRA, it's going to be ordinary income taxes, not long-term capital gains. And that strategy of trying to use one to offset the other doesn't really work with an annuity. If I had a lot of different stocks or a lot of different mutual funds, then I could do that. If, if my mutual fund ABC is up, but XYZ is down, and I sell ABC and XYZ, that loss can, on XYZ can offset the gain on ABC, but it doesn't really work using an annuity. Sorry. Okay, another text, Bruce. If you convert an IRA to a Roth IRA, do you ever recommend to pay the tax out of the conversion account instead of cash? Yeah, you can't do that. <laughs> I appreciate the texter's creative thinking, but you, you don't get to do that. So when we look at Roth conversion, the first thing we look at is what is the tax consequence of doing the conversion now? So a lot of times if somebody's still working and they're in a high tax bracket, the cost of the conversion makes it not worth it yet. It may, it may be worthwhile later when your income is down, when you're retired and you're in a lower tax bracket, but we, but we may not recommend any conversion at all right now if you're going to have to pay you know, 32% or some high tax rate. Um, then when you, if we do recommend a conversion, so in addition to looking at the tax rate, then we look at what is the time horizon that you can hold it in the Roth because it takes a certain period of time of that tax-free accumulation to offset the short-term cost of the tax that you paid to get it converted from the traditional IRA to the Roth IRA. And then the third thing we look at is do you have the economic wherewithal to pay that tax and it can't come out of the, the withdrawal or the conversion. It's got to be other money. So, I, and I've told this story on the show before. I always talk about how Roth conversion analysis at Wealth Enhancement is sort of standard operating procedure. We always look at it. And I had a client come in one time for their review meeting and had listened to me say that on the show. And they said, well, you didn't ever uh, 
he didn't ever do a Roth conversion analysis for me. And I said, oh, well, how do you know we didn't? He said, well, he never said anything about it. And I said, well, that's because we don't recommend it for you right now. We did the analysis, not making that recommendation right now, so I didn't bring it up. If I thought you should do, should do a conversion, then I would have brought it up. But we did the analysis. So um, great idea, Texter. I like your creative thinking. Doesn't We can't do that, though. Okay. Laura? Yep. I am a widow and will turn 70 next year. I live very comfortably on the income I am currently receiving. I have a pension plan that I must start using at that time. I don't need the money and wonder if I should roll the lump sum over to an IRA or what else could be done with it. Great question. So, first of all, congratulations on the fact that you still have a pension because we are seeing traditional pension plans less and less often. It, it, you know, a generation ago, two generations ago, pension plans, or the technical term is a defined uh, benefit plan, those were very, very common, and they're, and they're becoming less and less. They've largely been replaced by defined contribution plans, or 401ks, 403bs, so forth. So you know how much you're going to put into the plan, you don't know how much you're going to get out. On the pension, you knew how much you were going to get out or the defined uh, benefit. So an old pension plan is a great benefit to have. And whether or not to take installments or a lump sum is always a tricky thing to determine. So we, we can do that analysis. And I will tell you, uh, Texter, that the vast majority of the time, if you have a lump sum option, that is going to be more favorable to you. Now, a cynic might say, oh, you went to Helmer at Wealth Enhancement to get a pension analysis, and they told you to take the lump sum and invest it with them. Of course they did, because it's good for them. It is good for us, okay? That's the elephant in the room. That's good for us. But I'm a fiduciary. I don't give somebody advice just because it's good for me if it's not good for them. So we do an analysis, and we say, what is the monthly income or the annual income going to be if you take the installments versus what we think we could get if we took the lump sum and invested it? And some of the other advantages of, of uh, not taking the installment is, does the pension plan, is it fully funded? Can they do what they say they're going to do? A pension is not going to have cost of living adjustments. That, that income is going to be a fixed income. If you take the lump sum and we get a decent return, we might be able to increase your income or have more variable income. But it, any, to anyone that would say, oh, you probably look at every pension plan and say take the lump sum, it's not true. Sometimes the income that the pension offers is so good and so high that I don't know that we can do better or I don't think we could do better by investing the lump sum, then I would certainly tell that person to, to take the pension plan. The other part that can get tricky, and probably not for this texture, Laura, because she, she said she's widowed, but if you're married, um, the pension options might be, and again, oversimplified example, you can take a lifetime income option if you're the, the uh, employee of the company and it's your pension. And let's say that's $1,000 a month, but if you predecease your spouse, they get nothing. The pension stops. So most people will take some sort of reduction. Maybe they'll say, okay, well then give me $750 a month instead of 1000 but when I die, my spouse will continue to get $750. So you'll, you'll take a joint and survivor income option, and there's usually a variety of different ones of those. So 
when we do the pension analysis, we look at the strength of the of the of who's providing the pension. Is the pension fully funded? We look at the amount of the income. We look at the various options. We determine if you are going to take the installment payment, what's going to be appropriate for your situation, and then we compare and contrast that with what if we took the lump sum, had a tax-free rollover into an IRA, and what kind of rate of return would we need to get to be able to provide more income, and do we think we can achieve that return or not? That's basically the analysis. It's not an exact science. It never is, but we can absolutely help people probably maximize that benefit. Um, Laura, do we have time for one more? We do if you do. Okay. I own a farm that was gifted to me by my parents due to the low inheritance rules at the time, and their trust would have been over that as well. Rules have changed, but you do what you can when the rules are as they are. What can be done when I sell the farm within the next 10 to 15 years to limit the tax ramification? I have no children, so it will be sold and not inherited. Okay. Well, uh, now, in hindsight, I wish we wouldn't have taken that because the answer is a lot longer than the time we have. But really quickly, what they're talking about is capital gains tax on a highly appreciated asset. And then they're also, if you sell it, and then they're also talking potentially about estate taxes. On the estate tax side now, you can exclaim up at the federal level over $12 million that, you, that the next generation wouldn't have to pay estate taxes on. In the state of Minnesota, where this show originates, that number's much lower, and it's only $3 million. So the texture's got two different issues there, and it's complex. It's estate taxes, but it's also capital gains taxes if they sell the property. Estate taxes if they die and they leave it to someone. Uh, capital gains taxes if they sell it. What is their basis since it was gifted to them? What's their basis? What's their gain? They have to pay taxes on the gain. How can they mitigate those taxes? One strategy that jumps to mind that I don't really have time to explain is something called a charitable remainder trust. But I guess I would leave the texture with this. Don't just sell it without getting help from an attorney or an accountant or, best of all, a financial advisor, someone that does what I do, because there might be strategies that can help reduce some of that tax liability. Very nice. Thank you very much, Bruce. If you did not get your question answered today, Bruce can help you by email, and all you have to do is email him at yourmoney, all one word, at wealthenhancement.com. That's yourmoney at wealthenhancement.com. Thanks for joining us on CCO today. More Your Money next Sunday morning.